You can please some of the people some of the time. <laughs> but you can't please all of the people all of the time. Someone said that. I'll try to uh, provide a little bit of a context for what is being said. Uh, it may sound like a simple thing to talk about. Health, that's essentially what it is, and, uh, and insight meditation. If the talk were just on health, let's say if I were a naturopath or a medical doctor or whatever, it would be much easier, just straightforward, or if it was just on Vipassana insight meditation or some other form of meditation. But in bringing both together, uh, there can be some issues and some subtle kinds of understandings. Uh, I'm going to do my best to weave in and out to help us uh, see why this area can be a difficult one. Um, within Buddhist circles, in all the years that I've been practicing, I've never heard a talk given on health and Zen, health in Tibetan Buddhism, or health in Vipassana. doesn't mean it hasn't been given, but I have not heard it, nor seen it advertised, nor, uh, and I think that says something. Now, of course, there are things on Tibetan medicine, uh, Ayurvedic medicine. I don't mean that. I mean where it's uh, very much uh, an integral part of talking about meditation. And I I uh, hope that to some degree you'll see why that's so. Um, I think if you, I'm not an expert on comparative religion, but uh, what little I know suggests that uh, there's quite uh, a bit of variability in terms of the attitude towards the body and health when it comes to spiritual matters, ranging from real fear of the body, seeing it as the enemy, seeing it as something that uh, has to be, the connection to it has to be severed, because if you don't do that, you can't get to whatever is held up as the ideal, God or enlightenment or nirvana, whatever, true self. Uh, or seeing it as some kind of uh, a problem, getting in the way. And so sometimes it's avoided, sometimes it's feared, sometimes it's neglected, sometimes it's tremendously romanticized. Or that's a judgmental term, but let's say valued tremendously so. Um, in order to understand uh, why this talk uh, will require some weaving back and forth, uh, I do have to uh, present it in the context of Vipassana meditation because uh, the whole point of what is going to be said tonight is the role that caring for the body or a variety of health practices, no one in particular. Um, uh, the question is, can it play a role that's useful to the development of your meditation practice? And also, can it be harmful? Can it actually endanger your meditation practice? And my own answer would be yes to both. Uh, in order to understand uh, anything having to do with health and the body, uh, at least from this perspective, it's necessary to see and understand a little bit about how the Buddha viewed the body. And it was given a very, very important place. Those of you who know uh, the sutras know that the 
Satipatthana Sutra, literally one quarter of it is devoted to body awareness. Anapanasati, same thing. How could it not be? I mean, if we're going to be, if it's about liberation, how could the body not be a tremendously important uh, part of it? Now, in all of these approaches, there are trainings to help us enter into the body wholeheartedly, to come to know the body. Uh, that's a first step. It then moves on to coming, entering into feelings, then uh, various mind states, especially the mind states that are uh, afflictive, that are negative and that are painful and that are harmful for us. And then finally, liberation from the mind itself, even the so-called positive mind states. Okay. So uh, in one sense, if you look at the, uh, the, Buddha, the way the Buddha taught, it's, uh, and again, real life isn't so neat and tidy, and for different individuals it unfolds in, in sometimes in a radically different way. There's a progressive um, development of non-attachment, uh, beginning with liberation from the body. Liberation from the body doesn't mean neglect of the body. Uh, and then liberation from uh, the sensations, feelings, and then liberation from negative mind states, and finally from even that which has seen all of these uh, different conditions physical and mental. So it's the entire mind-body process. Uh, and there are many, many contemplations. If you view, let's say, the Zen tradition and uh, Theravadan Buddhism and the Tibetan tradition, uh, there's quite a bit of help, quite a bit of different contemplations. Since I know the, the tradition that has spawned Vipassana the best, uh, you start off with familiarizing yourself with the body getting to know the body, and entering it, uh, it for, for, awareness and, uh, for awareness to enter into the body is a different kind of knowing of the body than perhaps most or maybe all of us have had until we're introduced to it. It's a very simple, direct, non-conceptual sensitivity to or experience of bodily life. No knowledge is needed of anatomy, physiology, or anything of that sort. It can even be an impediment. If your head is filled up with what you think you're observing, what you think is happening, uh, that isn't simple enough. It's uh, raw, naked, understanding bodily life from inside with awareness. Uh, okay, we'll leave it at that. that. And of course, the breath is, in, in the Buddhist teaching, the breath being part of the body is central. So we always begin with the breathing. For some people, that would become a central method. There's one entire sutra, a famous one, that the Buddha attained enlightenment with, practicing it. For others, the breath will be play a role. Some, not at all. But it is, of course, part of the body. And so in these classical teachings, you're introduced to breathing, you're introduced to the body. Uh, and then from there, those are, for most of us, relatively easy to familiarize ourselves with, to become at home with the life of the body. Of course, there's individual variation. If you've had serious respiratory problems, asthma, uh, the breath may be terrifying for you. It may not be a useful door to enter into. But in any case, for most people, it's more accessible because th the sensations are more coarse. Coarse not being a judgmental term here at all. 
then there are feelings, that is, everything that comes in through the sense doors are experienced as pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. We're beginning to move into the mind already in a very simple way. Any sound that we hear, any sight that we see, etc. Then we get into the, the, the mind states that if you've been reading the Buddha, you know, are mentioned over and over again. Greed, hatred, and delusion, or craving, aversion, and confusion. Those three tendencies of mind, collectively called the kilesas, or mental toxins, poisons of the mind, which all human beings have to some degree. And uh, coming to know them, and to also know the mind when, it's, when they're absent. The mind that isn't craving something, that just, just is. The mind that isn't averse, and the mind that's clear rather than confused or uh, clouded. Okay, and then finally, uh, you start penetrating more deeply into the whole mind-body process, seeing the impermanent nature of everything that you familiarize yourself with, of the body, of feelings, and of these different mind states, seeing that all of it, no matter what you, everything that you're now a bit more familiar with, that you've entered into with very simple attention, sustained attention, it's all impermanent. It arises and passes away, and it's empty. Empty here meaning, not that it's a hallucination, but it lacks substantiality. Emptiness is the crown jewel of the Buddhist teaching. We're not going to uh, go into it a, lo a lot tonight, but uh, it's much more easy, easily understood when you begin to see the changing nature of everything, because it's just slightly different is to begin to see that things are constantly changing and in a way that's uncertain and out of our control. Great. Okay, so uh, the whole point is to, to develop the mind of no clinging, a mind that is equanimous, aware, sensitive, wakeful, uh, at a certain point, uh, thought-free, wakefulness, more and more can become part of your life. That is a mind that is, doesn't have a lot of thoughts, or when the thoughts are there, they're not overwhelming, or you're not compelled to be drawn into them. But you can use thought a lot, because we all need to use thought. So that more and more, uh, the impermanent and empty nature of the mind enables you uh, to let go. And of course, the liberation the Buddha is talking about is the letting go of attachment to anything whatsoever as being me or mine. In the Buddhist teaching, our problem finally is me. In my case, me. In your case, you. Okay. Well, I, I have to say this because uh, this familiar, familiarization with yourself, what we would call popularly self-knowledge, getting to know yourself, but it's more precise. It's about the nature of the body and the nature of the mind, and not uh, theoretically, although it begins that way, but by actual observation over a period of time, beginning to get to know the body, your body. Everyone has to do it for themselves and the mind states. Tonight I'll be emphasizing the body, but as you can imagine, there's no way of talking about the body without the mind, because we're a whole being. When you back, if we back up a bit, uh, some of you who have read, let's say, the Satipatthana Sutra, which is the major meditative teaching of the Buddha. He has a number of different meditations, uh, all of which are designed to help you not identify with the body, 
to get to know the body, but not to identify with it, with it and use it as the basis for selfing, to construct a sense of I am this. Rather, more and more to begin to see there is this body. Okay, now that, for those of you who are new to the practice, that might sound quite abstract. Maybe this will help you understand what I'm getting at. To begin with, we are very identified with anything that happens to the body. If the body gets old, we talk about I'm getting old. If the body is sick, I'm sick, if, uh, etc. If the body has a certain shape, I'm too fat, I'm too thin, etc. So a lot of notions that we attach to as, who, as to who we think we are are based on the body. It should be obvious. We develop images of that body, which we carry, carry around. There's probably a multi-billion dollar industry now that's designed uh, to help us manage all this body preoccupation or concern. Uh, so you see that it's, it's not a small thing. Um, so to begin with, it would be a rare person who's not identified with their body. Now, when I use the word identification, some people are very happy with their body. They like the way it's shaped. They like the way it looks. They like how people have responded to it. And they can attach to that and use that to build a sense of self, which according to these teachings, and if you've tested it in your life, perhaps you agree, brings suffering. So no one escapes. And then there are others who don't, we don't like our bodies. We don't like the way it's shaped. We don't like its age. We don't like uh, the way it looks. And that is also an identification. So both are equivalent. I hope that's clear. Now, the, the different contemplations that the Buddha gives us, for example, uh, just to see the body as the body. Uh, you can't do that if you identify with it because that uh, component will muddy up the water and you, you'll see the body through the mind's eye, so to speak, through yesterday's eyes, through your conditioning about what you think the body is. And we all have different notions until you, uh, you don't. Okay, there are also exercises, contemplative exercises, where you view the body and the ancient system was the, the elements, air, uh, water, fire, and earth. And there are meditative exercises where you begin to see that this body is composed of elements. We could do it with modern uh, biochemistry, I'm sure. And the point of that is there are actual meditations where you begin to see, uh, understand that this body is made up of material, stuff of a, a greater or more subtle degree. You, there are other meditations where you, uh, you go through the body, what are called the 32 parts of the body. Obviously, it can be more or less than 32. This is uh, from the time of the Buddha. And here you contemplate, and those of you who are new, don't uh, get too reactive when I say this, the unloveliness of the body. Uh, the, in this training, first you calm and concentrate the mind, and then it's as if you unzip the body, and you take a journey into your spleen, your liver, blood, pus, urine. Get my drift? Okay, so you begin to see that once you open the skin, what's in there? Okay, why would people want to do that? Well, and why you begin uh, in a more innocuous way or benign way. You begin to see, you reflect on or contemplate uh, hair on the head, hair on the body, 
nails, teeth. And you begin to over and over reflect on that. Oh yeah, look at that. These nails growing out of the skin. These teeth kind of popping out of the gums. You know, hair kind of growing continuously. You know, and then we have hair around here, around here, around. Some of us have more, some less. Sometimes considered beautiful in some cultures. In other cultures, you have to get rid of it. Special experts get rid of it for you. Okay, so when you start looking at that, the body starts to be seen as not necessarily your body. You see it as a, a process, a natural process. Now, why would we do that? And it, it, gets, it gets even more so because not only the unloveliness, but also you begin to contemplate the death of the body. You begin to, to uh, there are meditations, some of them based on actually being in the, in the charnel grounds with dead people, uh, or you can do it mentally. There are ways of doing it as visualization. Some of it can be quite powerful, um, where what you reflect on is the fate of this body. Uh, and you begin to, uh, the imagery is quite graphic. Uh, different uh, phases of the decomposition of the body till finally they're just bones and then the bones are all the tendons fall away and they're, they're just scattered bones and then the bones themselves are just powder and then the winds blow the powder away and before that there's a, a bloated bluish corpse and it goes through intermediate steps so what is this all about why is the Buddha what is he repulsed with the body yeah, that's our body we're talking about. This is not a theoretical discourse. That's our destination, all of us. Okay, now, why would he do that? Uh, some people will read that and without understanding the full context of it. And please, I, I hope you're moving with me, because you won't understand the whole thing about caring for the body and health unless you understand this background. Um, these are antidotes to the very, very powerful uh, tendency to be infatuated with the body or repulsed by, by your own body. Same thing. You're imprisoned by it. Okay, so that particularly if you're infatuated, let's say you're obsessed with sex or you're preoccupied with, uh, with, your, with physical beauty or youth, uh, this kind of, it's, I don't know if any of you remember W.C. Fields, you know, children would walk with balloons and he would just with a cigar, just puncture them. So this kind of just punctures your, I can see I'm dated here, but all right. <laughs> uh, uh, what is punctured here are notions that you have about the body. There's a tremendous, this is body image. It's not really finally about the physical body. It's the notions that we make up. And so it's an antidote to balance off any uh, obsession with the body in from a positive point of view. Now, one of the things that has to be understood is that these meditations are not for everyone. Often they were for celibate monks, and they can be for lay people do as well. I've, take, I've undergone some intensive training with it. And also, it's not exactly what you think it is. It isn't training in aversion. To give you an example, uh, my, my own teacher, Ajahn Sawat from Thailand, uh, first, when the mind became calm and concentrated, we did this for one month. Um, then going into the body, the 32 parts, exploring it, seeing the, the contents of the body after going through uh, hair of the head, hair of the body, nails, uh, teeth, and so forth. Uh, deeper and deeper. 
uh, until it was there, I reached a point where um, I was I would see someone eating at, at lunchtime it was all in silence except when I was talking to him and I was nauseous because I knew what was happening to the food and I knew what was going to not that I really knew but you know but I in my mind's eye I knew it or it would be quite vivid I'd enter into a sense of, of the organ or the colon or whatever it is uh, and we have a negative charge towards those things. Not, not necessarily. There can be training that goes in a different direction. And I'll, I'll go to, maybe we'll have time for that tonight. And as soon as I got very good at that, he then pulled the rug out from underneath and said, okay, now put the body back to where it was when you first started, which was, you know, a reasonably adequate body that's functioning and, uh, you know, no major physical problems. Uh, and t what he wanted was not aversion to the body or infatuation and clinging to the body, but a more balanced relationship to the body. There is this body. Do you see the difference? Okay, now, I don't think that's handed to us. Some people are quite naturally more at home with the body. And they're content and it's not that big a deal one way or another. But most of us have to do a bit of work to come to know our relationship to the body and its role in suffering. Because remember, the whole point of Vipassana meditation, in the Buddha's own words, I only teach suffering in the end of suffering. Not pain. Pain is necessary if you have a body. There's no way of escaping that. But suffering, as I'm using the term here, is optional. Or torment. That means what the mind can make up about bodies, which can be anything. And I'm sure there isn't a person in this room who doesn't know what I'm talking about. Okay. So... Uh, Theravadan Buddhism, which is this center comes out of that uh, lineage, is big on doing things of this sort. You have to understand that. Okay. Now the point is, again, it's to help you get free of the body, not to develop an aversion to it, which would, be, would not be a step in development. That would be another trap. Okay. And it isn't for everyone. It, uh, the, uh, some of them are hardly for anyone, especially if you're a lay person. I've seen it misused. I saw uh, at IMS once, I have a, a good friend who's a monk for many years now, an American, and uh, he led a retreat at IMS and uh, he invited me to sit on it, in and on his interviews so that we could then talk over how he was interviewing people. And there was uh, a man who was on the retreat who just had constant uh, fantasies about his wife, all sexual and attractive, and he couldn't wait to get home and it was a two-week retreat. He had quite a few days to go. Okay. And so this particular teacher uh, gave him this, uh, re re the repulsion of the body, uh, repulsiveness of the body, or the unloveliness would be more, going through the body, uh, and that can puncture whatever sexual fantasies you have. You know. So when this person left, we talked it over, and he was mainly in monastic circles. He said, well, so we talked over all of his interviews, and you know, how would you do it, how would you do it, and so forth. And I said, that one's off, from my point of view, as a lay person. He was uh, a monk, as I mentioned. I said, this person has to go back to his wife. You know, he's not a monastic uh, celibate monk. And what you're doing is you're, yes, you may be helping him on the retreat, but you're introducing something that may not be helpful for him. There are other ways to work with that which don't risk the possibility of complicating uh, his sexual life, which is, for many people, already complicated mainly because of the mind. Okay, so you can see that's what this is. Now,
Over the years, I've had an orientation towards health all along. In fact, uh, before coming to Buddhism, I was involved in uh, different forms of yoga, but that included a, a rather intense training in hatha yoga, different yogic hygienic practices, cleansings, uh, postures, breathing, and so forth. And I've never dropped that. It's still of interest to me and always has been. And it's not different from my Vipassana practice. It itself has evolved, and I have a, an interest in an amateurish way about herbal medicine. I, I, I actually love it, uh, etc. So for me, this is, they've been one thing for many years now. But in Buddhist circles, uh, it's rare. And I have received a lot of teasing over the years. You wouldn't believe how much teasing I've received. And some of it deserved, as I'll get to in a moment, because you can go off the deep end uh, with the positive side of the body when you get what seems to be very good. You know, you're very uh, health-oriented. I'll give you a few examples. Uh, during the early phases of the yoga training, I did a lot of cleansings and fasting. And Trungpa Rinpoche, who I didn't know as a teacher, but uh, oddly enough, I knew him as a drinking partner, not because I wanted a, wanted a drink, but that was the only way you could spend time with the guy. Uh, at any rate, we met, and we hadn't gone drinking yet. And um, I was fasting, and he was really quiet. And then all of a sudden, he gave me this incredible punch. You know, he said, what do you want? He said, what day are you fasting? I said, well, this is about my eighth or ninth day. And he said, oh, oh, very quiet. And then out of nowhere, he just went like, whack, really hard, right in here. You know, I was like that. And he said, what, do you want to live forever? <laughs> you know, and I realized, yeah. <laughs> in effect, I did. I mean, I was uh, preoccupied with all these health things. It was earlier on in doing it. And I realized he did, he did me a good turn. And, so we're starting to move in that direction. At IMS, I've taken, many of you I know have been to IMS, teasing like you wouldn't believe. They had one, we used to have skits at the end of the three-month retreat. Uh, they don't do that anymore. In other words, after three months of silence, everyone would just go nuts, you know, for, and we would have, uh, I guess you would call them roasts, or whatever, you know, takeoffs, and uh, particularly people who were teachers were prime targets. At any rate, uh, Sharon Salzberg, I don't think she'd mind telling, me telling the story, who many of you know. Uh, she was the most famous slow walker there. She could uh, do slow walking meditation. If there was a slow walking Olympics, Sharon would win. <laughs> she would win, hands down. I don't know anyone who could compete with her, Burmese, Thai, Tibetan, uh, anything. You know, she was a phenomenon. But then again, uh, I had this reputation of experimenting with all these different health foods and vegetarianism and uh, on and on and on. This was before, it's all, now it's all quite natural and acceptable. It wasn't then. This is the very early days of IMS. So they did this takeoff and the person who was describing me, somehow I sneaked out in the middle of a retreat, hitched a ride to Boston, uh, got massage, acupuncture, acupressure, <laughs> colonic irrigation. Uh, <laughs> Uh, Feldenkrais, uh, did a yoga session, uh, some uh, breath therapy, uh, macrobiotic meal, <laughs> and uh, aromatherapy, and you know, there were, and then I hitched the ride back. Okay, I did all this, 
and Sharon, who had started walking across the dining room, <laughs> she had only covered five feet. <laughs> so, okay, things have changed now, because now Joseph and Sharon are doing yoga. And uh, Joseph uh, made a concession. He said, I guess you were onto something okay in those days. The reason is simple. We're all getting older. Their bodies are falling apart. So now it, it has awakened them a little bit. But it's more than them. Um, uh, something is, is uh, changing. My experience has been that the body folks and the mind folks, with exceptions, have been separate from each other. There are people who are very, very concerned with every aspect of physical health, but not much interest in meditation. And the meditators, you know, reasonable, but not much interested in, in health. And with the exceptions, there have been like two uh, camps. Uh, so that the yoga world, for example, which is one expression of it, typically at the end of a, a yoga session, and I don't mean this in it to be offensive, it's just in my experience was true, there would always be this five minutes of meditation. And during that time you would look very holy, very spiritual, and you'd sit like this, and then the bell would ring, and then you'd all do whatever you did next. And in meditation, there would always be some, you know, moderation is good, uh, take care of the body, and that would be it for the meditators period. Things have changed. Now there are people teaching yoga at Vipassana retreats. They're springing up like little mushrooms. I'm doing it myself with a, a good friend of mine. Um, so something is going on. Now some of that I think has to do, and that's why I think it's important to talk about this, with the explosion of an interest in health. That is, it's now, in addition to it being a huge business, it also has some very good effects in my potentially and also some ways in which, like everything else, it, it gets distorted. So that people now are much more sensitive uh, to all the implications of diet, of exercise. And it's a good part of the society. I don't, it's not just Cambridge now. It used to be. And even in Cambridge, it was sort of rare. Okay, So that's starting to change. The people are buying supplements and uh, reading books about it and so forth. Uh, there, there's also, uh, coupled with that is the, I would call it the craze, you know, to kind of live forever. I received mail a few days ago inviting me to join the anti-aging research something or other. And in reading it, anti-aging, uh, they were talking about the war against aging. And, and I just feel like, I'm not anti-aging. Uh, and I don't want to go to war against aging. <laughs> That would be like going to war against the Atlantic Ocean. I mean, like, <laughs> what would that accomplish? Uh, I mean, aging is here. For, it looks like it's here for a while, you know? So, but, you know, people are found out you can live longer in sciences. You know, this is good for the brain. That's good for the spleen. And I'm not down on it. I'm not down on it. But so what is kicked off is, a, and then the exercises, right? They're just everyone is running, jogging, and you got, the joyless joggers. I hope none of you are them. <laughs> there are some people who genuinely like to run, and then you have the joyless joggers who are... It's like cod liver oil that my mother used to make me take. I don't, do mothers still do that? They don't? They do? Okay. And so there is this real concern, you know, for this body, for good reason. We're starting to learn obvious things that our grandmothers would have told us. You don't get any exercise and you eat all this uh, fatty diet, uh, why are you shocked that you have a heart attack and if you're smoking all the time and drinking and shooting up? 
uh, and you're amazed that your health is suffering. How could it not be? In other words, you, we are, so we're learning, I think, some rather obvious truths, some of them having to do with moderation. Okay, let's narrow it down now. Um, I think the best way for me to enter into this is to tell you uh, a very crucial event in my own practice uh, with one of the most important teachers that I ever worked with. And his name was Shivananda Saraswati. He was uh, an Indian yoga teacher, uh, not just of Hatha yoga, but uh, bro more broadly conceived, who I met many years ago, about 30 years ago, before I came to Buddhism. I met him at a yoga ashram. And Shivananda uh, Saraswati was about somewhere between 83, 84, 85. He was traveling alone, and he was in the States to visit four of his students. In those days, yoga was not well known either. It isn't the way it is now, where it's all over the place. Uh, they had been carrying on a mail or a mail a correspondence through the mail with him for years. He had been giving them advice on diet and yoga and breathing for many years. And then finally, they all, one in Canada, a few in the three in the States, New York and the, uh, Montana and somewhere else, they all communicate with each other, pulled, pitched in some money, and they flew him to the States, and, they, and so he was visiting each one of them. And I met him at this yoga ashram and soon realized that the main show, which was yoga training, was, in, was nowhere near as interesting as him. So I traveled with him for, for quite a while, and we lived together. We would visit different students, and more and more people got to know who he was, and so we were invited places. And Here's this 83-year-old uh, man uh, traveling by himself on the Greyhound bus. That's how he was traveling. Um, cheerful all the time. Uh, often we'd be in the same room. He would pop up at about 2 or 3 in the morning. He didn't seem to need all that much sleep. And he'd just go right into meditation. He'd just directly into it. And sometimes he'd just sit for hours. And then he'd come out of it, start joking, and wash up. And then we'd have breakfast. And then he would do whatever he had to do. And uh, so. He wasn't, he was uh, very much of a contemplative. And so as I got to know him, I got to know aspects of his story that I hope are helpful to you. If you're very new to meditation, I, th some of this may seem unnecessary because you, you might not have any excess baggage. And you, you know, so you don't even need to hear what I have to say. Uh, what he told me was that uh, when he was a young monk, he was a monk, um, he was, uh, in Vedanta, which is in some ways similar to what we do, uh, they have a practice called witnessing, which is where you watch whatever turns up in the mind and just see it as neti neti. This is not God. This is not God. It's a bit like watching the changing conditions as they, uh, of the body, of the mind, uh, of the breath, and so forth, until this, you come to something that isn't a changing condition, if there is such a thing. And of course, I think all the teachings agree there is but each one of us has to find it for ourselves. Um, what he discovered is that uh, his fellow monks, he was uh, in his teens then, who were older, were, uh, would mock yoga and breathing and diet and see that as like an inferior yogi, that, oh, these people are not into the higher teachings and so forth. But they were getting sick a lot. Uh, they were having energy problems, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And as he saw it, he then investigated Hatha Yoga, to make a long story short. He continued to be a contemplative. He didn't give that up. In other words, he did lots of sitting, hours and hours every day, retreats in the Himalayas and so forth. 
But he started to learn how to take care of his body. He finally got to the title of the talk. Uh, um, and he, through various teachers, he learned about uh, how to feed the body, how much rest it needs, uh, water, uh, different postures, how to breathe properly. And here, uh, here are a few things that I learned that I, I feel uh, I will never forget. Well, I don't know. I mean, it depends what happens to my brain. But, you know, but uh, right now I certainly have not forgotten it. Uh, what, he, what he said was, because he took care of his body, look, and he, he was not deluded. He knew there are no guarantees because uh, the body, in a sense, has a mind of its own or, or an unfolding all its own. You can do everything that's correct and perfect and come down with diseases. I've done it. So, and I, I do take pretty good care of myself. And what he was saying was, if you take reasonable care of the body, uh, you have a good chance of having a relatively painless old age. And if you have a, a relatively painless old age with um, not so many aches and pains and adequate energy, uh, plus a lot of this, the smallness and pettiness that accompanies us through youth and beyond falls away naturally. You know, you just start to see it, how idiotic. You know, you just don't waste time with a lot of trivia. There are some, there's a good side to aging. It's not all bad news, or at least potentially. And so he said that some of his deepest uh, insights came after the age of 70. But that's because he took a reasonable care of himself. And I, so that it stayed with me. And he got me into a, a mode of training that included cleansings and fastings and um, changing my diet and doing yoga postures and improving the way I would breathe and exercises that would be very different than what the Buddhists taught me. For example, I've never said this in public, but I think if you look at the talk shows, they talk about anything, right? So what I'm about to say is like a piece of nothing compared to what, uh, <laughs> what's his name, Maury or whatever they, who are these, what are they, you know, in the morning, what? Maury Poe. and others, you know, where they hit each other and everyone, you know, uh, <laughs> you know what, you, you know, uh, five people, all of whom have slept with their best friend's lover, uh, who, and all of whom are married to their mother's brother's sister. I, yeah, I don't know what, you know, it just, and they have all of them collected, and then they fight right on the stage. So what I'm about to say is just nothing. He would have me examine uh, my bowel movements every day and keep notes on them. Ex very different for the, it wasn't to, to uh, kind of imprint the unloveliness of the body, but to actually come to the same place. Uh, behind it had a health motive, that is, come to see how your wastes are correlated with your emotional state, what you eat, the level of your energy, your health, and of course we know that it's a very accurate index of a lot of things. Any, uh, well, I don't know, modern doctors, maybe not, but ancient doctors knew all about this, and some doctors still do. Okay, so. At first, you're repulsed. You don't want to do it. You don't like this, that, and the other. But you come to, you can come to finally realizing it's just a natural process, and you're neither repulsed nor in love with your own fecal material. None of it. <laughs> you know, it's just a natural process, and it's a kind of small liberation to be able to relate to it that way. And you see it as kind of impersonal. It's something that just the body has a nature, and this is the way it works. If you feed it this, this is what happens, etc. Um, okay, now what he's trying to say, what he did say very effectively to me, 
is that, let's say on the one extreme, uh, and this comes out of the Buddha's experience uh, in his own, if you've read the life of the Buddha. By the way, some of you, a few of you are nervously looking at your watch. If you have to leave at, let's say, a particular time, I won't take it as rude. It's okay. Uh, if you can, wait till about 8.30. I may go a bit longer, and then we'll have opportunity for questions. But I understand that uh, we started a little late, and some of you may have to catch a train or whatever. It's not rude. It's okay. Um, on the one hand, uh, you have, let's say, there, there seem to be very different attitudes that you can have towards the body, from falling in love with it, a kind of infatuation with the body, uh, infatuation with its health, its strength, its youthfulness, I'm young for my age, whatever it is, uh, through repulsion with the body, through training, spiritual trainings where you're trained to have some distance from it. But here's uh, something that I've observed. It's possible in Buddhist training, in all the three schools, I know this one the best, but I've also looked around in the others, to have be meditating for 10, 15, and 20 years and more, and to have very, very keen awareness of the impermanent, empty nature of the body, to understand that there is this body, what, so that you don't get attached to it so much. So you don't suffer, you know, if, it get, if it's healthy, you feel great, you're a happy person. Then it gets sick and you're depressed. Then it gets, uh, it's uh, youthful and someone says you're attractive, you feel great. Then you start aging, signs of aging, you get, you're sad, and so forth. Uh, little by little, beginning to liberate yourself from the body. So that there is this body which must go through its natural journey. This is not sentimental or Buddhist. It's just true, for goodness sakes. All of us, if you look, you'll see it. No one escapes. No one. Okay. So you can get very good at that and at the same time not pick up very much bodily know-how, not know how to take care of your body. At first I was amazed. I mean, we talk about mindfulness of the body, awareness of the body, so much in these circles. And it is possible to be quite highly developed and refined, and even a, a, a fair degree of, or even a great deal of liberation from bodily torment, but you don't understand how to eat, how to sleep, what the needs of the body are, because you've never paid attention to the body that way, because it's not spiritual. You haven't been encouraged to do that. Again, the mind can compartmentalize, and so there's sort of health, which is okay, you know, there's general health, which every human being values, and, uh, and then you've got uh, a view of it where the most important thing is spiritual development. Well, from, from the way I'm speaking tonight, I would agree with that. That is, wisdom has to be in charge. That is, if care of the body is to become part of our practice, uh, it's very important that wisdom be in charge. It's not, see, that's what I meant. If you're just interested in the health of the body, then great, just take care of that. You don't care if the mind identifies with it, becomes vain about it, uh, etc. the psychological price that's paid for it. But since we're mainly interested in liberation, and we'll get, <coughs> can the body be in the service of liberation? That's what I'd like to get to next. Uh, and can you, at the same time that you're seeing the impermanent changing, empty nature of the body, which is the heart of our Buddhist, our Vipassana practice. At the same time, um, 
learn about how you, what your body's needs are. Uh, it's not that complicated, but you have to really listen. Let me give you an example. One of my teachers was uh, an, uh, an Indian teacher named uh, J. Krishnamurti. And he would talk this way too. And I asked him, well, give me a sense. What do you mean, learn about the bodily, body's needs? He said, okay, here's the simplest. You wake up in the morning. Instead of just running through your, let's say, you have a, a routine that you go through. First you shower, then you're, and then you're off. Now, assuming that you have some time, you know, if, if you have to, if there's no time, you have to catch a train or whatever it is, then what I'm saying may not make as much sense. What he was saying is, don't immediately pop out of bed. Lie in bed and invite the body to tell you what its needs are. In other words, examine it with awareness. It's not thinking. It's more, what's, what's the body like today? What, how are we starting this day? Uh, and if you do that, you can actually see, did it have enough rest? If it didn't and you have the time, then give it a bit more rest. Don't get out of bed just yet. If you don't have the time, then of course then you have no choice. Um, it might want to move in a certain way. Uh, and then, so you invite the body to, to kind of reveal itself to you. With practice, the awareness can become very simple. It's listening. It's listening to the body. But this quality of listening can enter into every step of the body's participation in life. And here's where care of the body starts more directly influencing uh, or being a positive factor in meditation. Look, if you have health, we're talking about overall health, if you're blessed with health, I think everyone, I don't have to, here, let's see, this is what, no one's down on it, uh, but this is what Dogen, a great Japanese master says, everyday life is a noble life. The body that maintains this life is a noble body. Do not waste your life. Do not neglect your body. Respect the body and adore this life. Now, what this, in context, which I know more about what he was saying, what he's saying is that if you care for the body, so that it ha it's what Shivananda Sarasvati was saying, so that it has a reasonable amount of energy, it's reasonably healthy, it's a, it's a if you're very, very spiritual, try getting through the day without the body. I mean, it's always there. And just common sense, if there's a reasonable level of health, everything is easier in life, isn't it? I mean, I don't... Okay, so that part is, is obvious, but it gets much more precise, much more, if you're willing to learn. Okay, Krishnamurti's example, if you pay attention, you can get to understand what your body's needs are. I'm not talking about all the different diets, I'm not saying don't read those diets or try them, but I'm saying, first and foremost, get to know what your body is telling you, even about after you try a diet. In order to do that, you have to help the body become innocent. You have to throw away all the knowledge you have of the body, all the opinions and so forth. It's the same mind you need to see impermanence and to see emptiness, only now uh, you're also its bodily know-how. Now, um, when you sit in meditation, because this is aimed at people who are going to do a fair amount of sitting in their life, this talk. Um, wouldn't it be an asset if uh, you b were breathing properly? If when you sat on a chair or cross-legged or on a bench, if you could do that and the body was supple enough and you weren't in agonizing pain, those who have not done a retreat, you know, until the body learns how to do it, it can be quite uncomfortable, even very, very painful. Because we're not used to that. Okay. 
uh, how about if the spine were reasonably erect so that the breathing is, is flowing uh, properly? If the breathing is flowing properly, not only is the mind clearer, because the breath is, is a very, very important conditioner of the body and of the mind, but also the breathing would be more vivid. So since breath awareness is a major part of a lot of what many of us do in meditation, uh, and this is an experiment that I've already tried. I brought Now, yoga is one of the best ways to help bring this about, but this is not a t an, an advertisement for yoga. Tai Chi may do it, uh, <coughs> I, uh, different martial arts, but uh, yoga is the one I know best. Uh, that was devised for meditators thousands of years ago. It's not, now it's become leotard yoga, you know, where it's, it's mainly for outfits and to have firm abs and a nice trim hard butt. Uh, I don't know what the ancient yogis, they must be sobbing away in there. <laughs> Maybe not. Maybe they're so free that they're just having a good laugh at their own expense. Uh, but any form of training there, it, whether it's uh, uh, Feldenkrais or uh, breath therapies, various breath therapies, massage, anything that kind of helps the body helps sitting meditation. For example, if, if, the, if, the, if the posture, if the, there's, uh, the hips are, are, are I'm not going to go into all the details, but there are ways of working with the body so that it becomes equipped to be able to sit comfortably and stable for extended periods of time. That's an asset. That's an asset. Uh, if you have a reasonably adequate diet, that one of, the, one of the, the benefits that can come from a reasonably good diet is a strong nervous system. When you get into deep states of meditation, some of it is very concentrated states, you're tapping voltage, very, very refined energy. If your nervous system is strong, it's much easier to deal with it. It goes beyond that, in my, in my opinion. Uh, if you start revealing the unconscious, which of course it's inevitable that you will do if you're going to do this meditation, what is going to come up may be childhood fears, loneliness, angers, and so forth. Difficult things to observe. It's a tremendous asset. If the body is stable, if the body can sit in a stable way and reasonably comfortable like a strong tree, that gives you, it's not the, whole, the answer to the problem, but it gives you a strong foundation from which to observe very, very difficult emotional states, like fear of, of many kinds. And a strong nervous system is an asset. Healthy, full breathing uh, enables the breath to be more accessible so that your concentration practice will develop uh, so much more easily. I tried this experiment some years ago. There was an Italian yoga teacher who I knew from IMS. And people were, the early days of CIMC, many people were having a very hard time being aware of breathing. It still happens. It's not uncommon. Uh, sometimes we have... Um, problems, emotional or physical obstructions, and the breath is, uh, it's not functioning too well. And then someone says, observe your breathing. And you're being asked to observe something that's faulty. That's not, it's not flowing smoothly. It's not fun uh, to observe the breath because it's fighting its way in and out because of certain um, irregularities of, of, uh, of breath. We just did a simple yoga class she wasn't even, you know, some hotshot yoga teacher, just uh, where, of course, breathing is part of it, being mindful of breathing in the <coughs> postures. And then the comparison for the same Vipassana practice, it was like night and day. And that's why some of us are teaching it now, 
because it's really helpful the way metta metta is not a replacement for insight or wisdom it doesn't uproot things and this is not going to be a replacement for wisdom either but if it can give you more energy some more comfort more stability uh, for the mind to be more alert for the brain to be more fresh isn't that a virtue that can help you okay so uh, if care for the body can very much be a positive factor in enabling you to carry out your Vipassana practice. Are there dangers? Absolutely. Tremendous ones. So the great masters who were very careful about caring for the health of the body uh, knew what they were talking about. One of the easiest things to happen is you become infatuated with this newfound health, if you didn't have it or if you already have it, a youthfulness, uh, whatever it is, uh, to the point where it, it takes your mind off you're distracted from the real purpose of, of meditation. Now, it do, that doesn't have to happen. Is it possible to see the impermanent, empty nature of the body and at the same time care for the body? Is it possible to see that in a profound and fundamental way you are not your body? I don't mean this as an ideology. You may see that if you keep doing this practice. Is it possible to see that in a profound way that you're not your body and nonetheless you're living in it for X number of years and still care for it. Again, I once asked uh, Krishnamurti about this and he said, yeah, sure, you're not your body, but uh, it's like being a cavalry officer and you're not your horse either, but when you go into combat, your horse better be in good shape or your, your life could be endangered. Now, to give you some of the dangers of this health, that's why I'm going, I'm straddling back and forth. Remember, the Buddha went from overindulgence or indulgence as a young man in the palace, and then he went to extreme asceticism, torturing the body, and he rejected both and came to a middle way, a reasonable care of the body. Um, and it's, what is that reasonable care? I mean, I think each one of us has to find out. Uh, when is our interest in the body, has it become so overwhelming that we still sit, but that's sort of um, a minor thing that we do, because basically we're just constantly obsessed with uh, going to bread and circus, uh, reading about the, you know, whatever it is, getting our massage, getting acupuncture, acupressure, like me, you know, <laughs> you become like me. Okay, I'm trying to save you, spare you that. Okay. So I remember once someone uh, asked Krishnamurti, uh, uh, Krishnamurti did yoga the most of his life, but he never trumpeted it. He never talked it up because he was very concerned about that. W one time someone asked him about it and he said, oh yeah, yeah, I do yoga every day. I also brush my teeth and floss every day. You know, like, no big deal. Okay, but it was much more important to him than that. I mean, I know that and so do others who know it. It's now, his records are very clear on that. Someone once said, uh, Krishnaji, I understand you do yoga a lot and I hear that gives you much more energy, which of course yoga can. Any kind of uh, sensible life will give you more, more energy. And he says, yes, that's true. Yoga can give you much more energy. And also, more energy, more mischief. <laughs> In other words, if there's, no, if there's no wisdom, having a lot of energy or power, that, can, that isn't necessarily a blessing. That can f uh, the ego can jump in on that big time. So you can see, uh, if you're really interested in awakening, if you're interested in what this path is designed for, to help liberate ourselves from suffering, 
of course, the health of the body is something that can be part of it. And if sensibly carried out, it will be a servant of what we do. And if not, uh, it becomes something that overwhelms. After all, our, for most of us, the urge to be wise and compassionate is rather feeble. Am I being insulting? I mean, we begin this practice, many of us, because we suffer, because we've already, the ego has pushed us around. Grab this, get that, become this. If you do that, it's, we've been doing that along. It takes a while to understand maybe there's more to life than that. You know, any spiritual path. It's not unique to Buddhism. Okay. Uh, so, in the process of beginning to see that, uh, can we start to take care of the body, but understand that wisdom is in charge? That at least if you're going to be on this path, you don't have to. You can do whatever you want. Okay. Now, there's much more to go, but I'm going to stop because uh, I've given you a few hints on how care for the body can help you with your practice. It goes the other way as well. Uh, Vipassana meditation, by extension, Zen and Tibetan Buddhist meditation as well, actually can play a tremendous role in healing the body. Now, we don't talk about that much for, the, for a similar reason, because people get easily sidetracked. We also don't talk about certain psychic powers that come from the body for the same reason. Someone once asked the Buddha, supposedly you have full psychic powers, but you never teach us that. How come? He said, well, if I taught you psychic powers, which can come out of a very concentrated mind, it's not anything mysterious. Uh, he said, if I taught you that, I would be like a very bad physician who cures you from a minor ailment only for you to die of a major ailment. In other words, so fine, you can read somebody else's mind. Great. That doesn't mean you know yourself. Try reading your own mind. Well, I'd, I'd rather read your mind. <laughs> it's true. It's a lot easier. And people also appreciate it. Can you give me a reading? Is it, you know, I mean, I know you don't have time. Oh, yeah, I think I'll give you. And it's also, you can make a nice living these days, too. <laughs> okay. So... Uh, all of these things can be twisted and distorted, and all of them are potentially beautiful. It's not, it's not really a problem. Um, final point, and then I think we'll let the poor, weary, exhausted people go home, and those who want to continue on stay. Um, take yoga, for example, where there are, I think, even if you don't do yoga, you have, in the popular mind now, everyone knows it's certain postures, certain ways of breathing, uh, hints about uh, bodily hygiene. Uh, in other words, it's a, a way of life, really. It's more than just postures. Okay. Um, what I'm saying is that that, and by extension, other kinds of trainings, you know, maybe something you're doing that I don't know anything about, that can equip the body so that it can help you with your meditation in ways that I've hinted at before. But I would like to go one step beyond that. You see, our practice, and now I'm only speaking about what I know best is mindfulness, uh, Vipassana practice, and I don't even know that one too well. Our practice, uh, you know, you probably those you've been around who's coming here, you know that it's not limited to sitting. It, it, is mean, it means to bring mindfulness into everything you do. That is, it's a way of life, into daily life, into taking out the garbage, into cooking into talking and listening, into making love, into everything. It's not reserved for the cushion. Okay, so now if you do yoga or, or whatever it is you do, 
And if you bring mindfulness to it, as you bring the same attitude that you've been bringing into, let's say, walking meditation, but now you bring it into the postures and the breathing and, and eating, whatever else you do, it's immediately a meditation practice. It's not like it's an auxiliary that's going to serve you know, the star of the show is, which is sitting. It's rather another expression, another manifestation of there's only one practice really, and it's not limited to any posture. It's awareness, and it's, the aware, it's learning how to look and how to listen and how to learn from what we see and hear. And out of that can uh, come unlearning what needs to be unlearned in our life and learning and strengthening what, what needs to be learned in our life. Uh, okay, why don't we just... Uh, things about... You see, I'll just tell you where this can go and then we'll, we will... It also, it, care of the body also includes how to take care of the body when it's, when it's sick. But I, we have gone into that in other, on other occasions, other Wednesday nights. Uh, and also the healing of the body through mindfulness has a very uh, beneficial effect. Uh, wh whatever it touches, it seems to have a good effect on. But there's another way in which even, exp there's some research now, and uh, this really will be the end. Uh, I have a few friends who are scientists and also meditators, and uh, what they're seeing, uh, uh, for example, if you practice vipassana, forget about everything I said tonight about the body. Just keep up your same junk food diet, because you're going to die anyway. Everything's impermanent, right? Okay, so why bother with anything I said? Okay. Um, Sorry, I lost my thread. Um, I need more ginkgo, you know that? <laughs> Not only ginkgo, but DHA, do you know that one? And phosphatidylserine, do you know that one? Aha, I got you. Very good at finding out what the brain is constituted of. Um, okay, um, what they're f finding is that uh, this comes out of the stress reduction literature, John Kabat-Zinn and others, that if you uh, bring mindfulness to the mind, you know, all of your uh, dukkha, your suffering, uh, the, that part which meditation can help you with, then if you're more at peace, you're not stressed out, burnt out, and all the rest of those terms, then the body has more energy to do what it naturally does want to do, which is heal itself. The body's inclination is to, to a point to heal itself. Moreover, your immune system won't be so demolished. So that uh, working with the breathing, working with the mind directly, has a, a somewhat indirect effect on uh, helping with all diseases. They've done research on people who've meditated and who've used prayer, a kind of prayer that's similar to what we do, uh, and people heal more quickly. Um, there is a recent, it's not published yet, a study, uh, with, this is also John Kabat-Zinn, I know some of you know him. Uh, they did a study of people who had never meditated before and were given, I think, eight weeks of uh, mindfulness meditation training. And the most sophisticated brain uh, were, uh, equipment used to map the brain at the beginning, at the end of eight weeks, the structure of the brain changes from meditation. That's not surprising if you've practiced for a long time. Because you know when the mind gets very quiet, you know that something is happening where the brain is saying, oh, thank you. You've stopped thinking for 10 seconds. <laughs> oh, oh, 
just it starts crying with, with joy. <laughs> I'm not planning. I'm not worrying. I'm not, uh, uh, I'm not calculating how I'm going to become this, which is better than what I am now. Okay. So uh, it's a big subject, as you can see. Thank you for your attention. And uh, now you can go to the local bars and, you know, ransack. <laughs> Anyone who wants to leave now, now uh, I'll remain f for a while in terms of question and answer, but this may help some of you. If during the question and answer period you have to leave, it's fine. It won't be rude. You can just get up whenever you, you need to get up. Please uh, feel free to stand up and move. You've been sitting for quite a while. Standing, that's okay. I know some. Anything that you'd like to talk over about? Well, what all this stuff? You don't have to agree with anything that's been said. Sure. I just I have one question. If if you feel comfortable speaking even more personally, I wonder how all your training and meditation and in yoga. Yeah, a lot of that I, I've gone into in the in the uh, aging, sickness, and death, because it just was an application of that. But I, I, I'll I'll go into it because there's some of it is more directly about this. I, I don't want to. Uh, those the question is this: here here I am, Mr. Natural, right? And what happens? I got pneumonia. Okay, it's even funnier than that. Although at the time I didn't see the humor in it, for the first five minutes, I was giving a talk at Barry on. Uh, the role of health, and w something like what was tonight. And I think I was the only sick person in the room, you know, <laughs> coughing and sneezing. It, it later developed into pneumonia because I uh, stupidly remained there and kept giving talks every night, and uh, etc. Um, if you get attached to health, so we'll start with that, of course you will suffer because no matter what you do, no matter what you do, I hope you hear that. You can buy out bread and circus. You can uh, get all, you know, there's no way in which you can totally control the destiny of the body. There's no way. Now, some people have a relatively painless life, but everyone, uh, no one owns the body. Legally, perhaps you do. But this body has an unfolding, and it's out of your hands. So all you can do is take good care of it, and then the rest is in the hands of Allah. It's really, uh, it's not, uh, and, uh, or in the terms of the Gita, not get attached to the, to the fruit of what you do. Now, if you then conclude, well, then why should I even bother if it's out of my hands? Okay, then don't. You know, the truth is you have some degree of control over the, the nature of the body by caring for it. Obviously you do. Although here it gets complicated, like, uh, Yoshi Denden, who is, used to be the Dalai Lama's physician, he described the way the Tibetans work with illness. And he said, step number one, he gave this talk at UMass Medical School to a room full of uh, medical doctors, interns, residents. I'm going to back off on it. Uh, 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 I know a few of you are medical. 
he started off this talk, an auditorium just packed with doctors and would-be doctors. And he said in Tibet, the very first requirement before we select somebody for medical study is we see if their compassion is developed sufficiently. Okay. Now, I don't think that is, uh, when you think, I don't know, you, you would know and others would know uh, it, what your grades are and what your test scores are and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I don't think I'd say, well, you have all straight A's from Harvard, but you're not very compassionate. I don't think we can let you into the Harvard Medical School. That'll be the day. <laughs> Maybe. That, that, you know, then, okay. But then he went on, he said that when people are ill, step number one, of course, they use the traditional medicines of the Tibetan med herbs and so forth. If that doesn't work, and, they use, and they've used everything up, and that includes meditation if you are a meditator, says, then they go to an oracle, which would be psychic. And sometimes, whether you believe in this or not, this is what he said. Uh, these are people who have a gift, a psychic gift, and sometimes they can identify what the ailment is about. And perhaps even, remember that for the Tibetans, past lifetime is as natural as breathing. And he said, uh, or what from a past lifetime this is about and what's working its way out, and sometimes even the remedy. Like Edgar Casey, the sleeping prophet, came up with amazing health remedies while asleep. Well, try and explain that. I can't. He said, but finally that can fail too. The third one is sometimes it's your karma. There's nothing you can do about it. You just have to live it out and bear it. And uh, then what you have to do is you, you bring, the, if you're, a, if you're a, a practitioner, you bring all the practice to your illness. Okay, now to answer your question. Um, I'm not used to not teaching, and uh, pneumonia was, is, is not a joke. And so when I, uh, when I, when that was, when I was told what that was, I, uh, first I had to let go of a retreat at IMS that I was teaching. I'd never done that. That was very hard to do. So, uh, and then I had to let go of practice groups and retreats and talks and interviews here. And that was very, very hard to do. Uh, some of it, I think, was, uh, was there some dukkha there, some suffering? Yes. Uh, but the attachment wasn't not like, big surprise, you're getting sick. I know that. In other words, I've taken good care of myself for many years, and overall I'm in good health. Uh, I went to uh, Harvard Vanguard and I had a full checkup uh, three weeks before I got pneumonia. Uh, this is just an aside, but maybe it isn't. <laughs> and uh, they blood tests, cholesterol, everything. And my doctor was a fine doctor. We've worked together for a number of years. And he said, uh, for your age, you're in remarkable health. Three weeks later, I had pneumonia. You know, okay. So there are a lot of factors that are at work here. Uh, and Yes, there was some disappointment, of course, because I'd rather be healthy than sick. But I don't think it took all that long. I, and I was, I saw, okay, and I know I'm vulnerable from a respiratory. But the problem was more not uh, having to stop teaching, having to stop uh, and a feeling of letting CIMC down and, you know, feeling like a, a deadbeat dad, you know, sort of like it's not. Uh, all kinds of just uh, working class, you know, I was brought up, you know, to be, Get you know work ethic, Dif what responsible. responsible work ethic you know all kinds of things. Those of you who know Zen, there was a teaching: a day of no work is a day of no eating. Zen monks are different than Theravada monks, and I always was more drawn to that. I don't think I'd be so good walking around with a bowl. It would be good training. I've done it, but I'm much more comfortable just working and then feeling okay about eating. Okay, so 
but I got over it. And then I must say, I, made, I think I made very good use of the time. I got a lot of sitting in. Now, what, what is practice when you get ill? And here's where I don't want to go into detail. It's on tapes that are in the library. Uh, you practice with what's there. And what's there would be whatever is there. Not the, the designation pneumonia, but the particular bodily sensations and then what the mind throws up about it, whether it's disappointment or fear or what have you. Yeah. Please. You know what I think, right? It's the most important thing. <laughs> Forget about all this meditation thing. <laughs> no, it's obviously we know that that's a factor. It's very, very helpful. Sure, no question about it. Um, but it doesn't have to be at the expense of anything I'm talking about. Sure. It punctures the ego, put in Buddhist terminology. Yeah, you don't take yourself quite so seriously. If you do, you know, you'll just suffer more. Nothing from a medical doctor? I see something stewing there. <laughs> you can disagree, you know, I don't... I don't uh, no, no, I'm more trying to think about it in terms of how do you approach somebody who, who is suffering, and I keep trying to think, you know, to, to try to figure out what the use of them seeming to be just trying to help themselves. And, you know, I don't think there's anything I can really ask. So, you know, just a reading, going to the library, uh, but you know, I don't know if it, I don't know if you're getting at this, but if a person has no kind of awareness practice, probably they can't take advantage of anything that's been said tonight, or very little of it. I mean, that's what I've seen because I've reached out to some of my relatives who can't stand what I do, and no matter how much love I have for them, I couldn't help my own mother or father. I couldn't. I mean, the, no, the love helped, but so yes, I mean, you have to make an educated, intelligent assessment that you do what you can do on all the working with mind and with body and it's skillful means you have to do what you can. If a person has awareness as a resource, I think it, it just, it can get much more interesting. Yeah, but if a person does it, I don't see how they can, would have access, even maybe not even know what I'm talking about. I don't know. Anyone here who's really, really new to meditation? Really new. Okay, because I would love to hear what... There is someone? Yeah. Is what I'm saying make any sense to you? Okay, but you haven't done much... What? And you've done the five minutes. Do you look kind of holy when you do it? You have a nice uh, spiritual look on your face? Yeah. <laughs> so I'm not exaggerating, right? Yeah. Okay, but let's say, so you haven't done a lot of meditation, sitting meditation, not a lot of it. Okay, so uh, just, just thinking it through and, and moving with me, did any of that make some sense for you? Okay, so then, but now it's just words. If you, then if you start to meditate, then you have to test it and see if it's actually true, not just an agreeable idea or set of experiences that someone's sharing with you. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Please. I'm wondering um, if we can talk a little bit about um, the 
Yeah, that's something that I don't think I, I, I can. I'll, I'll have to give you the quick treatment. Not all yogas focus on the body. There are people who practice yoga who are in, uh, uh, just as oblivious to the body as, as Buddhists. Well, not oblivious, but uh, not taking advantage of what mindfulness can can offer. Uh, the philosophies differ. My, my experience uh, has been when I was in Vedanta, I would hear the yoga, yoga, Patanjali, Raja Yoga people put down the Buddhists and they would cite all these historical exchanges where great monks like Shankaracharya wiped the floor with Buddhist monks and annihilated them in debates about, you know, is there a self? No, there's no self. And then when I went to the Buddhists, uh, you get the other side of it and how the Buddhists uh, the Buddhist teaching really uh, moved dramatically beyond what all the Hindus were because they, you know, they were lost in this, their imagination of what they think the greater, you know. But the truth is, a lot of that seemed to be just talk to me because the really good ones, they all seemed to be as free as each other I didn't, and as kind and as generous. I didn't find that much of a difference, quite honestly. The words that they used to talk about it were really different and not too complimentary. Sectarianism is everywhere, including spiritual life. It's alive and well. Uh, so uh, on the level of philosophy, pick one that feels the best for you. But from the point of view of this practice, finally, it's not about philosophy. The Buddha is not really a philosopher in this sense. Because the real question, is, for example, and some of this research on the health benefits of mindfulness meditation and of Buddhist meditation. It, if you were an atheist or uh, an agnostic or a Buddhist or Islam or Catholic, it didn't matter. If you were, the key thing is, were, were you willing to observe what's happening to you? Those are ideas about, you know, there is, you know, re reincarnation is different than the Buddhist rebirth. Subtle, but there's quite a difference. And if, let's say you and I, let's say, have you been in yoga a bit? Okay, let's say you're in yoga mind and I'm in vipassana mind. And if I talk to you from, from vipassana mind and you listen and talk to me from, Buddha, from yoga mind, we're very different. <coughs> but when the mind is clear, where is yoga and where is Buddhism? Where is there a vipassana or a Zen or uh, a Jewish yoga or Christian yoga? You know, uh, that's all, those are still on the level of ideation and concepts and thoughts. But it's, most people don't want to leave that. The, in order to come to the immeasurable, and I, or if to find out if there's anything sacred in life, not as an idea, but truly, okay, uh, you have to let go of all ideas, including the best ones, which may have taken you some distance. I'm not saying the teachings don't have a place. They do. But so at that point, I don't know. If you have a teacher who's in yoga and who's prepared you to really... Uh, get to know yourself and to see through your problems and to let go, let go, let go. See, a lot of us in the West, uh, letting go is, 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 doesn't sound very good because our culture is all accumulation, consumerism. But if I told you that as you let go, tremendous vitality, spiritual vitality comes with letting go. You don't get shortchanged when you let go. But kind of our mind is as if we're getting gypped. You know, well, 
of course, from the ego's point of view, that kind of gratification is, that's also the problem. So I don't know what to say. I don't, I have as much respect and appreciation for uh, Swami Chinmayananda and a few others, you know, as I do for my Buddhist teachers. I didn't feel they were more or less generous or the really good ones. Uh, the way they would talk about it was certainly different. But uh, personally, uh, I think they're both right. And uh, if they would only, that's all I have to say. Yeah. I may not be too satisfying, but please. Physical practice? Yeah. What do you mean? Yeah. You mean this this particular? Oh yes, we do a lot of walking meditation, and and the. Well, uh, yes and no. That is, uh, Buddhism is more than Theravadan Buddhism. Uh, some Zen centers in Japan that I practiced that had yoga, but to me it was rather crude compared to the Indian yoga that I had studied. It was just sort of limbering up and, uh, you know, feeling a little bit better about it. You know, th this, it wasn't a really refined, uh, highly sophisticated uh, kind of a whole thing. Theravadan Buddhism, uh, Tibetan Buddhism has a yoga that was taken from India and given a tantric twist, if that means anything to you. Um, in Theravadan Buddhism, it varies. Some uh, Vipassana teachers, uh, on retreats at least, will not allow you to do yoga because they feel that's going to distract you. Uh, the Buddha talked about walking meditation a fair amount as necessary to keep stay in balance. Look, if you're sitting 10, 12, and more hours a day, you need to break that up with, with walking. And so don't underestimate the health value of walking meditation. But in Theravadan Buddhism, there isn't a yoga. I think that that's what's happening now, what's, what is evolving from it's happening in Europe and in America is what you could call mindfulness yoga. I feel that uh, John Kabat-Zinn's been doing it for a long time. There are others where you take the same attitude and approach that you take to your meditative life and you apply it to these postures. That's all. It's, n it's not such a big deal, really. But I have found that any really good yoga taught by a competent teacher will help you with meditation. It's not. There's some schools that seem closer to contemplative vibration more, but all of them, because I've trained in a few of them, they're all helpful, very, very helpful. But no, there isn't, to my knowledge, in, in, uh, in this. They w but remember, like in Thailand, the monks go on rounds every day, and they'll walk for hours into the town with their bowls to get food, and then they'll walk for hours back. So some of them are in pretty good shape. Now, in terms of diet, they don't have much control over their diet. They have to eat what's given to them. And that can be good training in terms of uh, character. You know, <laughs> but, <laughs> but some of the things I ate when I was doing that, my uh, liver uh, didn't like it too well. But I, I definitely came back with a better character. Don't look yeah. for trouble. <laughs> but, you know, how to work with, you know, 
It'll, look, it'll come inevitably. Don't, let's not rush it. Probably. I, I mean, I'm not, I don't mean to be a party pooper. You know, but... Okay. Okay. Yes. Okay, your, your question's a good one, and it's consistent with everything that's been said. Um, let's say you have the fear. You, you, your test, you haven't gotten the results. Uh, you asked, did I have thoughts, you know, so thoughts of, uh, you don't control the thinking mind. No, you know, I'm not a, a uh, I don't have aphasia, you know, or prefrontal lobotomy or, you know, thoughts come up. And the question is, uh, do the thoughts have power over you? Okay, and so let's say worrying thoughts, uh, start, ima yeah, imaginings about what the results are going to say and, you know, what's going to happen. And then before you know it, an emotion comes up in the body and, you know, you understand. Okay, now, that suffering is unnecessary from the point of view of practice because the truth is you don't know what the results are. So you might as well have a bad test reading because you've already given it to yourself. You know, and you're putting the body through certain negative things. Heart starts pumping, pulse changes, and so forth. So with skillful meditation, uh, what you can do is begin to take some of the power out of the natural tendency of the mind to want a good result and to not want a bad result. Now, but the aim of practice, you see, uh, once there was a very, very old and sick man came to the Buddha and he said, oh, I have all these bodily aches and I don't know how much longer I have to go and, you know, he was, this, you know, and he wanted some advice and the, the Buddha told him about practice and he said, look, uh, your body may be old, your body may be stiff, your body may be even in pain, and of course your body's going to, uh, let's leave it at that. And he said, uh, but does your mind have to be old? He said, and uh, this may sound like a Hollywood ending, but with training it's possible to reside, see more and more that's the whole point of the practice, for, your, you, for you to live in thought-free wakefulness. Okay, now in that, that doesn't age. Awareness, this the awareness I'm talking about, has no age. It's not Hindu, it's not Buddhist, it's uh, not a man or a woman. And there we're all the same. Okay, now, more and more, you, probably if you've meditated for a while, you've tasted it now and then. You know, a moment when you feel more whole. You don't feel like you're broken up in, because thought fractures us, breaks us up into pieces. Images of ourselves, that's a fraction. Do, do you see what I'm getting at? Okay. So when that, let's say, falls away, even if it's just for a minute, there's a sense of presence, you know, and that gets stronger. Now, that, as you, if, if you more and more do it, that gets stronger, and so more of our life can be lived from that place, and then we lose it, we come back to it, and we lose it, and that's what grows. So the body must age, it must get sick, but if we're not, when you're living in awareness, when you are the knowing itself, you're not identified with it, and through reflection and study, you've already gotten reasonably comfortable with a poignant truth. I don't mean to say, oh, it's a piece of cake, that it's poignant. You know, everything, people we love die. I mean, I've lost some, probably you have too. And it's mysterious, why can't, how could that be? They're not here anymore, and they're never coming back, never. Right, so you were practicing. Not sure? Yeah, now, but the awareness has to be uh, equanimous, not pushing away or grasping, just like a mirror. 
So you see the, the mind's fear. It's not that that's bad or wrong, it's natural. Who wouldn't feel that way? Okay. But we're learning, it's not that we're trying to get a particular mental state in regard to illness or anything else. What we're learning is a radically new way of approaching what happens to us, of relating what happens to us. What is going to happen to us and is happening to us is out of our control. But we can learn to relate to it in a, it's actually a revolutionary way. It's a quiet, bloodless revolution. It's been around for a long time. It's just news to us. Please. Did you sue him? <laughs> Today is people sue for anything. We might get make some nice change out of that. Okay, next step is to not need him, for you to be able to take care of yourself that way. See what I mean? Because we don't know if he's going to be around. I'd like to throw a question back to all of you. You notice we're all talking about disease, no one's talking about health. What is it, boring? Only when you don't have it, it becomes interesting. What? I, yeah. Yeah. Anything about some, anyone disagree? I, I love disagreements. Yes. Why just for, aren't you part of ecology? I am, but... Aren't you not, you're not part of planet Earth? You just care about the environment, you're an environmentalist, Greenpeace, p picketing, and uh, you're not part of the planet that the organic food turns out to be good for you too. Yes, that's true. But mm. I consider that less important. Okay. 
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.